Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Today on Time Sensitive, we have Rashid Johnson, the internationally acclaimed artist, well-known for working across many, many mediums, from film to painting, sculpture, installation, originally a photographer. Um, what did you guys talk about? We really honed in on the idea of escapism. Uh, for me, it, it's something that's sort of central to all of Rashid's work. And I think it's something that just on a much larger level, all of us kind of yearn for somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, different levels of escape. So we dug into what that means for Rashid in the in the context of what he does, uh, whether it's his latest uh, and actually debut feature film, uh, HBO's Native Son that came out earlier this year, or uh, his his new show that's about to open at Hauser and Worth called The Hikers that's around a film that he shot in Aspen. All of his work on some level has to do with personal narrative. But it's also collective. It's about things much larger than himself. So connected to that, we discuss this notion of the monolithic experience and how he really rails against the idea of any of us being labeled or, or lumped into a larger group, that he believes we, we need to be celebrated as the complex individuals we are. Very refreshing perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. This is Rashid and Spencer. Today in the studio, we've got artist Rashid Johnson. Uh, welcome, Rashid. It's great to be here. It being a podcast that's about time, I wanted to start on that subject. Time is like a very common feature in your work, and often it's through these sort of different cultural markers, usually all kind of going back to your upbringing, which was just outside of Chicago. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like, How do you think about time in the context of the work you do? I mean, it's a really interesting question, and it's uh, something that's been challenging for me in the work for for many years. And you alluded to this. My upraising has something to do with it. Uh, My mother is a historian, and so in a lot of ways, it felt like growing up time was, you know, laid out very differently because we talked a lot about the past. We talked a lot about how the past could affect the future, and it really just kind of stuck with me. A lot of that, you know, just thinking about the images that were around the house, whether, you know, they were posters of Intazaki Shange's for color girls who consider suicide when the rainbow was not enough. And just kind of thinking about that time, mm-hmm. right? Or whether it was a lot of the the literary references and, and philosophical references on the bookshelves in our house and how that kind of started to help me organize when something happened or how there was an antecedent to Mm. another experience. I make a lot of references to a book in particular called the, the crisis of the Negro intellectual that was really kind of scary on, on my mother's bookshelf when I was young, just seeing that and thinking, Oh, at some point I was maybe going to have to engage with it and, 
and then realizing that it ended with the the poet and activist Leroy Jones. And then I thought, where does it go from there? Right. This this kind of series of kind of rhizomic threads and mm-hmm. veins that were started and stopped. And, you know, as a result, I think time like really very much belongs in my work. But at the same time, it's um it's almost kind of invisible or flattened out. Right. And and something that's interesting about it is it's like you're really encouraging conversation to happen through your work, oftentimes through ambiguity, complexity, contradiction. But it's really about like shared connections, uh, bringing people together in ways they might not expect, which, of course, all connects back to time in really interesting ways. When it comes to this idea of like flattened time, in some ways, do you think that's the notion of like the timeless yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely one way to look at it is this idea of timelessness or this idea of kind of cannibalizing time in mm-hmm. a way, like kind of taking it all in and then re-delivering it in different form, right? Like hijacking certain narratives or certain ideas of, of like structure. So, you know, in earlier photographs, I was really interested in the, the the work of James Vanderzee, a photographer who was photographing, uh, are, are most known for his photographs during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. But I was using stylistic choices that were like his, that felt quite contemporary, but were definitely referential to to the way that he made images and to the aesthetic choices of a lot of his models. But to me, they felt like a now space, and they also were meant to speak towards kind of a future or an un, un, a misunderstood future or a a forgotten past. Hmm. I mean, in all honesty, it's really quite interesting to me uh, because I don't necessarily, yeah, I mean, as much as I'm like conscious of, of time and how it functions, because my work is so committed to reinvestigations of the canon, whether it's a literary one or whether it's one that discusses uh, the visual arts or music, you know, because it's so cyclical, those mediums and so many of the references that are contemporary are actually mm-hmm. born of previous influencers. It's almost impossible for me to actually kind of categorize a linear structured time mm-hmm. in my work or oftentimes in the work of others. Right. Yeah. You mentioned sort of reinvestigating the canon and your work, of course, also kind of reimagines history, which I'm sure connects in some level to your mother's work. Let's talk Native Son, because I think you know the new film uh, is your feature directorial debut. Obviously a very loaded story in many ways to reconstruct, rethink, reconfigure. How did you go about taking this 1940 Richard Wright novel and making it something for the screen today? It was filled with danger. <laughs> you know, and, and and I'm not I'm not that courageous of a person necessarily. I mean, it's not as if I looked at at uh, Richard Wright's novel and said I want to put myself in harm's way um, and and retelling this story. It, you know, I came by it quite honestly, and again to kind of reference my youth, I read it when I was about sixteen. It was a it was a book given to me by my mother 
Right. Who had, who had told you that she actually didn't really like the book. She did not. Yeah. (laughs) She really struggled with, with, uh, with that character. And, you know, like anyone of a generation or, or anyone speaking to a generation prior to theirs, they think that somehow there was something misunderstood that maybe I would understand differently. And so I actually embraced the book quite early and thought about, you know, Wright's protagonist, Bigger Thomas and his relationship to, um, you know, the time that he lived and to the idea of the antihero. And I thought that that character was incredibly complicated. And then I started thinking about, you know, how it would function in a different time than the one that Wright produced for his story to exist. And it just kind of fluidly kept evolving. You know, there were reference points in other films and other things that I was interested in, whether it was the uh, the film starring Jimmy Cliff, The Heart of They Come, and, and the, that kind of antihero, whether it was thinking about Melvin Van Peebles and his seminal work, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And there were all these references to these kind of black outsiders, these black protagonists who didn't f- follow an easily trodden path that were complicated, that oftentimes didn't necessarily make the kinds of decisions that we would all hope that they would have made. And I saw Wright's character in the existential form that way. I mean, of course, Wright expatriated in in the, I think, mid-40s or early 50s to Paris. So thinking about, you know, his kind of relationship to a lot of existential writers and the negotiation between those spaces and the naturalism that is oftentimes attributed to him was something for me to think, oh, well, how do I explore this space? And um, it's it's a deeply complicated story and and it's uh, hard to read. It's hard to, to, it's hard to, to watch. watch. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm interested also in, in sort of how you create um, a character that is not only out there to show how unique he is as a human, but how distinctive the black experience is, period. We oftentimes color these things in very simple terms. And I think it's interesting how this character in particular, he's like a punk rock kid. He's got green hair. You know, he's kind of living a totally different thing than we might see portrayed on television, we might read about in the news. He is, frankly, like a really special character. And I think it's like when you get into that character, you only understand a a much larger experience than a stereotype, let's say. No, no question about it. I mean, I I honestly grew up railing against the idea of the, the monolithic Black experience. And it's something that started for me quite early and it started where I, where I grew up. I grew up uh, in, in the North side of Chicago in Evanston in particular, which is uh, the first suburb uh, North of the city, mm-hmm. just a couple blocks, uh, you know, North of the, of Howard street, which is the Chicago border. Mm. And where I grew up, it was just really quite diverse. I mean, it was, um, I think maybe 40% African-American, 40% white, a lot of those white folks were Jewish. And then, you know, a good healthy mix of Asian and Latino folks. And, you know, in that place, there wasn't necessarily one way to be anything. Mm-hmm. And as much as I talk about, you know, kind of railing against black 
the black monolithic experience. I also rail uh, more recently in, in the exploration of kind of the white monolithic experience. Right. right. And there's so much being written about that right now on both sides. There is. It's a really interesting space, to be honest. Uh, whiteness is a, is a fascinating space. And I think we're finally starting to open some of the doors mm-hmm. to having a discussion about uh, its complexity, its density, and its diversity. But, you know, thinking about the character that was born for the film, the bigger that I, I, I kind of helped conjure, yeah, he's he's different, you know. He's different in a lot of ways. I mean, he's uh, he's definitely a punk. He's he's an outsider. He seems like he's kind of you know in the throes of a kind of existential crisis to some degree. He's figuring out how to contribute to a world that I think he's often challenged by. Mm-hmm. It's also his youth. I mean, he's yeah. you know in his early twenties and. Anybody who's been through that time has some feeling about, yeah. you know, what that stage in life yeah. is like and, and, and throw in the fact that, you know, you're, you're an African-American kid from the north side of Chicago uh, who, you know, has a different kind of cultural sensibility than maybe a lot of the folks around you. And I imagine that conundrum can even become more complicated. And and I think that's how this character unfolds. Right. And he goes and works for this wealthy white family. Was that kind of related at all to things you saw in Evanston growing up? Like those kinds of houses, that kind of lifestyle, that kind of reality? Yeah, I mean, it's not terribly far from a lot yeah. of the things that I witnessed. Even in Evanston, and I, you know, I, I'm really enthusiastic about its diversity. I only knew one black kid who lived like on what they would call the right side of the tracks. You know, the, everyone else more or less lived, um, you know, there were, there were quite a few middle-class black kids, mm-hmm. which is more or less where my family was. My, my mother was a professor. When I was young, she was a graduate student. And my father was just starting this little electronics business. So we didn't have much uh, when I was, when I was young, but yes, I definitely, because of my experience there, had exposure to some wealthier folks. It's like an affluent bubble. Yeah, I think that's what this affluent bubble, yeah. but with this real ambition to expose their mm. children to other folks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I love in the movie, there's this scene uh, where Mary Dalton, the character who is like the daughter of the family, he's sort of, so he's like chaperoning around. She tells him something that is like very monolithic black experience. And his response is, yeah, well, I'll be sure to mention that at our next black meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he had to break that down. I, you know, I wanted him to have, you know, moments of charm. Yeah. uh, Not be completely bowled over by the experience. I mean, he's a dynamic person in mm-hmm. his own right. I mean, right. He's quite capable. I think he's like... He's a punk who's surprisingly put together when you kind of get... Down yeah, to, in some yeah. ways he's put together. I mean, yeah. he shows some commitment to this job. I mean, yeah. he see, like he understands a certain sense of responsibility. I mean, he, he sees the challenges that Mary uh, and her boyfriend Jan have to kind of engaging with him because mm-hmm. of like their lack of experience and more diverse atmosphere. So he like, he really more than anyone else in the story, he understands his location, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone else is kind of like floating around yeah. him while he is like quite aware of the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And we feel like a comfort level with that until, 
you know, we get to a stage where even he can't diagnose the circumstances. It becomes right. overwhelming or beyond either his or Mary's ability, mm. you know, because um, the kind of institutional component, mm. the the larger kind of, you know, challenges of the American condition uh, overwhelm mm. the relationships. I thought what was particularly interesting is on the surface it might be a black movie, but it's actually exploring whiteness just as much. And and you get this this sort of tensions that come between that conversation, even in like kind of lighthearted or silly moments, like where where Mary asks him where he summers, and he's like, "I summer where I winter." Yeah, it's like, and he responds to that with, with like a, with humor. Yeah, I mean he he sees her limitations. He's not really frustrated mm-hmm. by by the failure of her question or the naivete of her question. He almost expects it, and he kind of throws it back with some gumption. He's kind of like, "I mm-hmm. summer where I winter," like. That's a ridiculous question, <laughs> you know, more or less. Uh, yeah. And I think that she, you know, it, it, she's really quite an interesting character because her response is that she didn't want to assume, mm-hmm. you know, that she, you know, knows more or less that it's unlikely that he would have a place where he goes for the summer. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't want to treat him differently or ask him questions that mm. would be different than she would ask someone else. Mm. And in that way, I think it makes her really thoughtful, you know, as, as challenging as that question is and as absurd as it is and how it can almost feel condescending. I don't think that that was her intention. And that's where you get into some of the explorations of whiteness that I think add some real color to right. how these characters function. Right. And then, of course, there's class underlying all of this, too. The idea of blindness is something that's explored in a lot of your work, and particularly in this film. You know, there's even a line where Bigger says, maybe everyone's blind, even me. Could you talk about blindness through the lens of this film and and sort of how you unpacked that idea? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think of blindness with its opposition being wokeness, just like to give some clarity to that. I'm not exactly sure how we start to define what wokeness is and the way that it's been deployed over the last few years, especially with its relationship to activism. I don't find it to be problematic, but I also don't necessarily see my relationship to it specifically or who has access or agency to that wokeness. But blindness is something that I think is is really complicated because it really talks about how you how you become aware mm. and awareness and cognizance I think are really thoughtful things to engage with like how you become aware of things at what stage and how the staging of that awareness begins to affect your relationship to it and I always give the reference that I was raised with a real pretty healthy knowledge or familiarity with some radical thinkers, right? I was introduced to the work of Miri Baraka at a very early age, the work of Malcolm X at a very early age, uh, W.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington, and a lot of kind of more kind of black radical intellectuals and thinkers. I think some people come to that kind of material later in life, and it may have a different effect on them, right? Since it was more or less kind of conjured you know, for me at such an early stage, it was about, that was normalcy. Mm-hmm. Like that was 
a common space. It was something I kind of understood. It was almost intrinsic to my early education. When you come to some things later and you're exposed to a certain kind of radical sensibility, then you may have a more radical response to it. And so it's interesting, like when you become aware, right? And, and, and what the terms of that awareness are and how that affects your understanding of certain circumstances. And I think blindness are, are the not knowing of something for a period of time can both be a reward uh, and it could be something that you can use quite effectively, or it can be something that's uh, suggestive of something you just haven't seen yet. And mm. so I think blindness is is not singular in my employment of it. It's really, it's all still kind of unfolding for for this kind mm. of concept of the blind. I want to go back to your upbringing. You know, you mentioned your your academic mother who had a PhD and teaches your father who ran his own electronics business. It was like ham radio, CV, I think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What was it like kind of growing up uh, in Evanston? And I understand your, your father also moved uh, to another neighborhood. Yeah, we, we lived between Evanston and then uh, Wicker Park mm-hmm. neighborhood when I was growing up. Wicker Park was prior to its more recent gentrification was uh, mostly black and Latino neighborhood at the time. And so there was a real kind of a lot of similarity between the two neighborhoods uh, as far as their makeup was concerned, but uh, dissimilar as far as kind of some of the opportunities uh, that the different groups had in the neighborhoods. Mm. You know, I had a good childhood, honestly. I mean, more or less, you know, (laughs) like I had, I had friends, you know, I think I was like mostly, well thought of amongst my groups. I, you know, I fought and struggled. I, I was a little bit of an outsider at times. I like almost dropped out of high school at one point because I got really into graffiti and, and then drugs. And um, then I kind of righted the shit more mm. or less like mm. later in my high school years. I still have a lot of friends and folks that I'm like, uh, you know, I have a relationship with. It's an interesting example, you know, the diversity of my friend group is that on, you know, everyone has these text groups now, right? Like, um, what do they call those things? <laughs> text, yeah, I don't know, when there's like 10 people on a... I don't know, dead yeah. chain. I don't yeah, know, like a text chain or something like <laughs> that. Um, but in the group that I'm a part of from like my childhood, like all the, the kids who I grew up with from preschool to, to today... There's like four black guys, two Asian guys, two Jewish guys, a white English guy. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a really, it's a mixed bag of guys. And that's kind of how I grew up. And that's in a lot of ways how I saw the world. That doesn't mean I wasn't exposed to, you know, racism, uh, xenophobia, homophobia. I mean, you know, anybody who grew up in the 70s and 80s as our shit today. Yeah. <laughs> Still. Yeah. has quite a bit of familiarity with those things, but it does in some ways color how I think about, you know, the world that we, that we live in mm. and the potential for the people who are in it. The diversity of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing when you're talking about the whiteness of, of it all, 
right? Uh, in, in particular, the characters in my film. I really wanted to make this film without producing deeply racist white characters. Because I, I feel like when you kind of produce a really dark and, and, and problematic white character, that most of the white audience, and rightfully so, doesn't necessarily see themselves in that character, right? And so from that point, they're able to produce kind of a scenario where they are not responsible for the racism that affects the black characters because the real perpetrator is this really racist mm. white character. And you see that pretty consistently in films that, that have black protagonists is that they usually face the obstacle of a really, really racist person, right? And then there's some like good white people who kind of help. And then there's like this really terrible, like really racist white person who is the is the real problem. And if we could just get rid of that person, mm. then the world's going to be great. And, and that's just really probably not the reality of how racism functions in this right. country. So, you know, Native Son and then other things that I think about, I often consider, you know, not producing evil white characters yet still something horrible happens and then the question really becomes like well if there aren't any like devils in this you know in this pot what were the things that made you know racism appear right and then you start realizing that quite mm -hmm. a bit of it is institutional quite a bit of it is baked in and not necessarily uh, evoked by individuals that we are all kind of faced with the obstacles of it because of its omnipresence. What was your response to Get Out when, when that movie came out? I thought it was really entertaining. I thought it was uh, really funny in a lot of ways. I thought it was really kind of educational in a lot of ways. I mean, look, there were aspects of it that are quite low-hanging fruit, you know, that were jokes for all of us to kind of like weed out those who were like a little less aware and be able to kind of play a little bit of an insider game in mm -hmm. that respect. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> so I was yeah. totally like, I was impressed that he was able to make it. I think comedians and folks who, you know, are on that side of, of the arts oftentimes, you know, like Chappelle and, you know, in the past, of course, like people like Richard Pryor, uh, and Eddie Murphy are the first ones and Chris Rock to mm. like be able to translate some of like society's yeah. ills into Dude, ways for us to digest. I, them. I just, you mentioning Eddie Murphy, like makes me think about this SNL skit where he dressed up as, as a, a white, white guy. Yeah. And it's like one of the best SNL skits of all time. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> and then like uh, when he gets on the bus as a white guy yeah. and then like the last black guy gets off and they start serving champagne <laughs> and like giving away money. <laughs> It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's just amazing because he it changes his voice. He changes how he walks. Yeah. Yeah. Like he starts to perform whiteness, yeah. which is interesting. Like the characteristics of the performance are mm. really quite interesting because it's not like he just paints his face white. Like no. he changes, like you said, his walk. <laughs> right. And he changes his voice. So it's like all the kind of the performance of whiteness is like, what is and how do we identify whiteness? Yeah. It's like obviously like more than just a one point 
position. Right. It's like these multiple positions and yeah. looking at those stereotypes and how they function was really funny in that, in that particular skit. Yeah. I want to go back to your parents because I think it's so interesting in the context of your work, knowing that you explore history so much, which clearly is, has been your mom's path. And, and you've also kind of played around with a lot of the electronics of your home, of, of growing up under your father. Yeah. I mean, my father was a tinkerer, you know, and I think that that's a, that's a thing that he and I share. It's, it's funny, like the CB radio culture of the late seventies and early eighties was one that's like really just right there at the, that kind of proto internet space, mm-hmm. right? That space right before we were all able to communicate using machines and participate in that kind of anonymity. But, you know, I grew up with that kind of anonymity in some, in some respect, like, we would get on the CB radio and my father would really enthusiastically like kind of call out into the world. And he had these alternators and these systems that allowed his broadcast channel to reach far out places. So, you know, we like talk to people from California and everyone had a handle, you know, like names that they called themselves. I mean, it was like, it was like instant messenger before instant. Yeah. Messenger. It was like, you were like, yeah, it's like instant <laughs> messaging. It was like, you were a superhero. Like my dad called himself top gun. And <laughs> so, I mean, look, it was anonymously reaching out into the world and saying, you know, I am here. Do you hear me? And there's mm. something really ambitious about it, but there's also something about curiosity in it. And mm. the curiosity of, of tinkering, the curiosity of communication and communicating with others who you don't know, who you don't have any expectation for. And you're just doing it just there's for the no purpose. There's no judgment. No, there's no judgment. I mean, listen, we've all been on the internet, so we know that there's judgment. Right? <laughs> we know that there's, you know, I mean, they've got whole words now for <laughs> the way people communicate with one another on the internet, that you know, trolling and um, and the bullying that we see out there. And I'm sure some of that belonged to that CB radio space as well, but it didn't feel like it. Not as much when I was young. It mm. just felt like exploration. It felt mm. like you were a radio astronaut in some <laughs> respect. And it's, it's interesting to go back to where we began the subject of time and, right. and how communication through time has really shifted. It has, it's, it's changing. <laughs> Every, every day, you know, the more and more, you know, how we author ourselves online is, yeah. is um, something I've been thinking about a lot recently, yeah. you know, and, and my footprint online and what I'm willing to say and what I'm, you know, keeping to myself in order to like spare myself the trolls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, you were a student in photography. You had an early interest in film as well. I think what's interesting is oftentimes um, your sort of breakout is credited with the studio museum show in uh, 2001 that Thelma Golden curated. But um, I actually found it really interesting that you got your work into a gallery, the Martha Schneider Gallery in Chicago. New Artist Old Processes was the name of the show that was going to be opening. And you basically like walk into this gallery, and, <laughs> you know, you know, age 19, or check out my work, <laughs> Yeah, which definitely takes idiot. some guts. Like our naivete, <laughs> you know, our naivete. I, you know, I didn't know what yeah. I was doing. I'd made a body of work that I thought was good and I felt like it was strong. 
so I, I, you know, I walked into a gallery that was apparently planning an exhibition called New Artists, Old Processes. And I was working in Van Dyke Brown, iron-based, 19th century photographic mm. printing. And I said, oh, I, I have these great things. Um, they're, they're ready for your show, more or less. And she's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, we don't, no one walks in with their portfolio. This is, you know. Or if, they're, if they do, they're turned around. It's yeah, like, they're like out. immediately turned around. So she really more or less turned me around. And she's like, you know, you should probably leave. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, you know, I, I just think you should probably really look at these because I think that there's other galleries that are going to be interested. And if you don't look at them, then I'll go to the other gallery. Like, like it was a threat of some sort. <laughs> And she, I think, found that amusing. And <laughs> this 19-year-old kid, like, yeah. yeah, I'll go to another gallery. Yeah, and she was like, okay, I'll look at them. And um, she gave me a show, you know, she gave me a show, like, a month later or something. We framed the, the prints, and, and she gave me a show, and, and we sold a few things to, uh, to the Art Institute Chicago, which was pretty amazing at the time. I think they were, uh, it was $400 they bought a print. And sold it to some other really interesting collectors in Chicago. And it was a start for me. But you know, having said that, I, I think Thelma's inclusion of me in the Studio Museum yeah. show Freestyle definitely bumped it up. Yeah. yeah. There's no question about it. I give her a lot of credit. I think she's a genius. Yeah. I just found it so interesting that like you, you had the kind of guts to go in and, and do that and that that was your real entree into the art world. Yeah, I was like showing and selling uh, small works from right, age like, 19. Yeah. I'm like a child actor, <laughs> you know, like I've been doing this for a long time. So then you, you, you get your BA from Columbia College in Chicago. That was in 2000, uh, from 2003 to 2005. You, you studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. It was there that, that you studied under Greg Bordowitz, who I understand is a professor of film and new media and an and activist too. It seemed like he had a pretty strong impact on you. Could you talk about that? He did. I, you know, I'd gone into grad school with some interest and familiarity with critical theory, but uh, it was expanded on quite a bit when I was at the school. And, and a person who was really influential in that expansion was was Greg Bordowitz, kind of introducing me to semiotics and new ideas, um, Books like Empire, uh, writers like uh, Deleuze and Gattare, you know, kind of better understanding people like Derrida and understanding and thinking about structuralism and deconstruction. I also studied with a woman named Barbara de Genevieve there who passed a few years ago, who was a huge influence on me. And um, a woman named Claire Pentecost, who was there at the time. I think she's still there, actually. Was really influential as well and some other folks in the department. So there were some really, you know, smart people there, some really thoughtful people there. Uh, but Greg in particular, I think the way that he saw the world, some of his writing, there was a book that, uh, that I'd gotten of his while I was a student called The AIDS Crisis is Ridiculous. And I remember reading that and just thinking about the world differently than I had thought about it prior, mm. you know, kind of getting a sense that things weren't necessarily you know, as solid as I thought that they were and that there was room and cracks in between, in between the things that I thought were, were, you know, resolved. 
that I that I realized were were considerably more porous, mm. and it allowed me to really think more expansively about my practice, both from a critical position and from an aesthetic one. You started in photography that evolved. Could you talk about that evolution a little bit early on in your career? Yeah, photography was, you know, it was an interesting medium to start because when I came into undergrad uh, in the 90s, photography, new media, performance, film, that's where the smart kids were. That's where the kids who were, you know, really interested in moving the conversation forward. That's where they were studying. I think, you know, now that I look back at it, I think we're kind of coming off of of the 80s boom and what had happened with painting. And of course, like all the enthusiasm for painting hadn't waned and, you know, it never will. But there was a real kind of dulling, I think, of the of like the market of it all. And so I didn't come into art thinking that there was any sort of like career to be had necessarily. Mm-hmm. I thought teaching was probably like the career to have in it. And so these kind of critical investigations using technology. Um, and when I say technology, I mean cameras. And other than that, I'm like pretty much a Luddite. <laughs> um, but using kind of new tools was really the place to be. Mm-hmm. It was the, it was one of the more interesting places, which was always challenging for me because I, I also always had a real um, enthusiasm for materials and for how to spread materials out and thinking a lot about mark making and abstraction and images. So there was always a dichotomy in me, like this ambition to be in the world of new media mm-hmm. uh, on this kind of cutting edge like wave of, of thinkers and creators, but at the same time, like quietly pining over like Clifford still paintings and quietly like perusing the art institutes abex section and thinking a lot about Franz Klein and some other folks, uh, Du Buffet. And so I've always had like that tuness about me. And I think it's just how I am naturally as an artist to to be excited mm-hmm. about multiple ways of right. participating. You mentioned materials, and I mean, I can't even list all the materials you've used, but it's it's like everything from bathroom tiles and broken mirrors, wallpaper to you know oak flooring, radios, DVD players, TVs. Um, I think probably most famously, black soap and shea butter. Um, which I definitely want to talk to you about. Like, how did uh, shea butter come into your head as like a material that you would turn into art or use for your art making? <laughs> shea butter came to me really honestly. I mean, it really came to me honestly. There was something that I had started to see in the work of, in particular, artists of color like David Hammonds and the like 80s and 90s, you know, some of that was kind of taking cultural materials and then allowing them to perform in very contemporary ways, Mm -hmm. right? Like allowing them to become kind of abstractions are tools that could be employed in a setting or a stage or a circumstance that allow for abstraction to be its root while still having a real strong kind of signifier 
relationship to its kind of cultural mm-hmm. underpinning and its root. And you saw that in like David's work with hair and with some other materials. And there were some other folks, I think, at the same time who were exploring these same concepts and ideas. And shea butter was something that I'd used for most of my life. I mean, I'd been exposed to it at an early mm-hmm. age. My mother was an African history professor, like we've talked about. And so I, you know, it was just around. And then, you know, a lot of times in the streets of like Chicago, New York, and a lot of other urban spaces, you see folks mm. like selling shea butter and black soap, like on, 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 on the street. Yeah. Um, you know, like 125th street. It's oh, all, yeah. It's all over the place, you know? And so that idea of Afrocentrism, that idea of like that kind of signifier. So I was actually sitting in my bathroom. It was like my first year of grad school. And, um, I was at the time the Tavis Smiley show was on National Public Radio. I used to listen to it every day. I think it was at 2 p.m. And Tavis was really kind of an interesting interviewer who did an hour and a half. I think the show was an hour, hour and a half mm. um, around like things that were affecting communities of color. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever gotten really into a program like that on National Public Radio, other than Terry Gross, which I like loved. Yeah her interviews. And I was putting on shea butter in my bathroom one day, listening to Tavis. And a friend called me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm listening to Tavis Smiley and I'm putting on shea butter. (laughs) And he just started to laugh. He thought it was really funny, you know? And I was like, what? That does sound like, like my work. Like that sums it up in a way. Like that's like, honestly, where I am like that, that's like who I am yeah. and it's incredibly contemporary and it's incredibly complicated and I thought it was this like really honest moment and so from there I I, I started kind of including Shea Butter at different points mm-hmm. in the work you even made a video that sort of replicated that experience of listening to Tavis yeah it's called bathroom. me Tavis Smiley and Shea Butter yeah <laughs> And then from there, I just started kind of using it, you know, and I thought about other people who had used materials that weren't dissimilar, Mm. like whether it be Joseph Boys or like the ownership of a material, like your Mm. relationship to it and the signifier that it was, like how the characteristics that it held were inherent to it and the stories that it has are kind of inherent to it. Mm. And then your contribution and you're relating it to things that aren't necessarily obvious. My studio manager, Alex, was telling me she studied and got a, a master's degree recently in, in psychology. And she was telling me about um, creativity and so, how some people define creativity. And she said that, you know, sometimes creativity can be defined by people who have a willingness to put things together that are unexpected to be combined, you know, that, that are not pragmatic in their combination. And as a result, something interesting is born of these kind of mm. uh, connections or collisions, I guess um, I would think they call them. And putting shea butter together with the things that I was putting it next to felt like these very contemporary collisions mm. And I guess in that way, it felt like deeply creative. Yeah. um, In in that sense, I want to mention Antoine's organ, which was uh, a piece you did in a 2016 exhibition that included that that video as part of it. Um, That really is like an assemblage. It was this plant-based installation. 
incredibly complex. I don't even want to like try to <laughs> describe it because I'll probably butcher it. But there was a live pianist, Antoine Baldwin, who was sort of embedded inside the, the thing. Talk a little bit about Antoine's organ, what it sort of meant or represented for, for you, the artist. Yeah, Antoine's organ was, was kind of a brain for me. I mean, it was really when I started to realize that I'd built more or less kind of a concert of things that I was interested in. Um, and when you kind of rattled off a list of the materials that I've worked with, you know, I start thinking and I continue in, in my work more recently to think about how I've worked with all these things and my mm-hmm. ambition to like put them all together. And my first instinct is think to think about that in collage form. Like are that it's collage, right? I think collage is an, is a, is a complicated thing to consider, you know. A friend of mine, a guy named Robert Longo, looked at a work of mine once. He said, no, these are collisions, you know. And I've kind of taken that from him. And I think that he's right. That As opposed to collage. Yeah, that it's just putting all these things together. Like, I don't believe in melting pots necessarily. I just think that, like, there's a bunch of shit in there. And you just have to kind of deal with it. (laughs) It's like eating chili. Like sometimes you get a bite with like all kidney beans, red beans or whatever. And sometimes you get a a different bite, right? You might get a pepper in there. Like sounds like America. Yeah. And that's kind of all of the things. And so I took a lot of, of interesting influences in putting together Antoine's organ. One was thinking about minimalism and thinking Mm. about structure Mm. and, my relationship to the grid. Yeah, and, like Sol LeWitt kind of comes to Yeah, that. and, yeah. you know, someone like LeWitt, who I thought about a lot. And then thinking about occupation, right? When you think about a lot of the minimalists, mm-hmm. um, you think about the simplicity and their relationship to industry and structure, right? And the formal kind of qualities in it. And I thought, well, in my hands, it, it doesn't do that. Like, I want to, like, occupy it like the dean's office or something like I want to like sit in it you know and and there were quite a few references for me to getting there I mean in in particular I uh, used to go to the Museum of Contemporary Art when I was young and I'd go with a few buddies of mine and it was like early in college and so I'd go with some of my graffiti writing buddies and it'd be like a couple like black kids kind of going into the Museum of Contemporary Art and I remember they had this great Carl Andre sculpture and we learned early on that you could stand on the Carl Andre sculpture. And so this, we, we go back and really we wanted to use it almost as a performance. Like it was like a platform, right? Oftentimes folks who came to the museum didn't know that you could stand on the Carl Andre sculpture. So like, I would like walk into the middle of the sculpture and like freak out like people who were, you know, walking through the museum they'd see me like, what is he doing on the sculpture? And I felt really, I don't know, like empowered that I was, one, had the knowledge that I could activate it. And two, that like my, you know, young black body was like there in the center of this kind of canonical historical work and that I was present in it and that I could engage it Mm -hmm. and activate it and turn Mm -hmm. it on. And so, you know, work like Antoine's organ, you know, share similar characteristics. It's about kind of turning those spaces on. Um, some ways I think about it as, a, you know, the reclamation of nature to, you know, man-made objects. It's a big steel kind of gridded cube. There's plants all over it that are kind of growing in it and above it and through it. And then it's, you know, at its heart is is a young musician, Antoine Baldwin, 
who, you know, performs quite beautifully and brilliantly, um, whatever the hell he wants to play on the piano. And he's kind of, uh, partially visible, but partially kind of, um, covered there, there, you know, references from, from my wife and her family, my wife's Iranian. And, and so I, I started years before using a lot of, uh, Persian rugs. And so it's just like, it's like everything. It's like Persian rugs, shea butter, black soap, books, you know, from A to B to A to Z, I guess yeah. would be a better way to say it. And uh, it all just kind of comes together and, and ideally helps maybe confuse you about what the hell my intentions are. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things um, about so much of your work that's similar to the Andre piece you're describing is this idea of it, it, it's meant to activate the viewer and, and position you within it. I guess as the artist in doing that act and making the people a part of it, what is your hope? What what do you? It's interesting. There's a, there's so many different ways to make people a part of things, and I think it's always intended to be inclusive, and in some ways to embrace the audience. More mm-hmm. recently, I've been thinking about you know the plants of it all, and people always ask me, oh, you know, what do the plants do? And one of the things I've noticed <laughs> that they do. And this is really honest. It's a really honest thinking around like what I've seen them do with audiences is the people come in and they look at the plants and they ask who's going to take care of them, you know? And it's like, it's inevitable. It's like the first thing that they're concerned about. Like if one were to collect the work. Who's gonna, no, they just wonder or, in the space, oh, like, like who's, who's watering? watering these? Like, is somebody doing it? Like, it's almost like a challenge. It's almost like, are you are you here to kill these plants? Like, and the thing that, that that starts to activate is a sense of empathy. Like people like come in and they're really empathetic towards the plants. They feel like, Oh my God, I need to check on these things. I need to like, I'm here to make sure that these plants are okay, more or less. And once empathy kind of enters the room, right? I think it's really, it breaks things down. You know, and it makes you more open and I feel like you, you pay attention and you think about things. You don't kind of come in with the clenched fist and ready to be challenged by, you know, the contemporariness of it all, you know, like. (laughs) Plants do kind of calm you. There's like a. They do. There's something really quite poetic about them, but Mm -hmm. they're really calming. And like, look, I use a lot of materials that people are familiar with. And one of the things that kind of keeps me in that place of using materials that people are familiar with is that people kind of come in and they know what they're looking at. You know, they'll look at tile and they're like, I know what this is. Right. So then like that familiarity tends to like, I don't know, like soften the read mm-hmm. of the work. Uh, it, it just softens it, how people approach it. Like once you already know that you know something, right? Then it becomes less intimidating, I think. And that, that's just interesting for me. Look, it's, it's not intended to be pandering because I don't think that the work panders, but I have a a real belief in the sophistication of an audience, both trained in art and not to like read and deal with and participate with work. It's one of the reasons that, you know, I'm really interested in kind of pushing arts literacy 
and visual literacy uh, and earlier education is to say, you know, give these kids agency. Like all they need to know is that they know enough mm. to look at an artwork. And right. if you tell people that, then they like have a different comfort level. Like, I, you know, my son's eight and I always push on, you know, enough to interpret any artwork. Like, you know, all the things you currently need to know right. to start to understand an artwork. And every artwork isn't to be addressed with the question, what does it mean? You know, because we shouldn't necessarily burden ourselves or anyone else with that responsibility. Like we can read, you know, like we can read pictures, talk, sculptures, talk. And all we have to do is start to read them. And we, we all have the language to do that. Yeah. And, and feel something. Absolutely. Yeah. On the subject of plants, how did those come into the picture for you, for, for, for your work? And it started early with the plants. I, it just came, you know, it came. I mean, there were, you know, of course there's some influences and artists that I saw that were using them, but I think I didn't really pay much attention to those artists until after I had started to use the material. I've always been interested in organic things. I'm interested in things that grow and change. Even thinking about photography early on, I was using 19th century process, which, you know, kind of then, I guess, cycles us back into this kind of idea of time, right? Uh, And that I was like, I was like a young guy working contemporary times, using a process from a different time. But even then, at those early stages, I started to bring in plants and other things that changed. Photography, you know, for good or bad, oftentimes has a an evolution as an object. It can only be out for so long. It's, you know, UV sensitive, you know, thinking about like my relationship to light and the relationship that artists have to light and that materials have to light, the amount of time things can be exposed. You know, light is like the enemy of every artwork, more or less, other than like mine. (laughs) (laughs) and so like there was this this idea you know especially having trained in photography early it was like keep it out of the light keep it out of the light and then I'm like how do I get into the light yeah you know how do I like push into that space right and plants were the one thing that the light affected for good yeah and so I was like okay well I'll create this dichotomy then I'll let the plants which need light have to live in spaces with objects that light is the enemy of. And then I'll try to figure out how to like negotiate those circumstances. It sounds so much like a human experience too. We all need light. We do. We do. I'm taking vitamin D supplements. You know, I I need more light. (laughs) Living in New York can be tough. (laughs) Um, I kind of want to finish on the subject of film and video there's several works you've done in addition to Native Son that I think are worth, you know, sort of bringing up and talk, exploring how and why you've you've treaded into more into the 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 video making. Um, the new Black Yoga from 2011 is one that I found particularly moving. It's basically depicting this scenario with these five African American men, and they're they're in the desert, and it's this choreographed experience. Could you talk about? the sort of thinking behind that and, and why that film has, I'm still wondering, I'm like, how did I respond to that? It's a really powerful film. It uses a lot of tools that, you know, again, speak to how we understand time. I originally made in 
got 2008 or 2007, a film called Black Yoga. And I was living in Berlin at the time. And I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. It was first, my first time living abroad for any sort of significant time. Actually, I'm not sure that's true, but either way, I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go to a yoga class. Because I remember I had had a doctor who told me, you should start doing yoga. It's great for breathing. It's going to really calm you down. I've always dealt with a lot of anxiety. And then I remember realizing that I wasn't going to necessarily be able to do that because all the yoga classes were in German. You know, whatever. I asked some people, can I take a yoga class? And they're like, you can't. It's in German. And I was like, can I just copy what the people do? And apparently that was not a reasonable solution for some reason. <laughs> So I found a young guy and I started to say, you know, I went to him, he was a dancer. And I said, look, I want to make this film about y yoga. And um, he was like, okay. And I was like, I don't know how to do yoga. And he didn't either. And so I started to just choreograph something that I made up. It was just called black yoga. It was just like <laughs> me and this guy figuring out how to like invent this kind of fictional yoga. And I shot it with an eight millimeter camera and it was this really weird movie, but it was really cathartic. You know, it was like, I had just invented this new yoga and we were going to just like practice this thing. And I remember showing it because it was shot in eight millimeter and people thinking and saying, Oh, you know, my parents used to do black yoga, you know, like just making up shit. You know? And I was like, what are you talking? I invented this. This is like, but the film looked like it was so, shot. so believable. Yeah. yeah. It was like shot in 1971. The guy had an afro. Like <laughs> it just like every bit of it felt like it was a like found footage. So everyone just assumed that it was like this, like I found this like archive of like black yoga, like footage. And, you know, from there I was like, you know, I want to expand on it. You know, I really want to expand on it and I want to, I want to put more people in it. I want to make it a group, like a group effort. And so I found these other five young dancers and we shot this film. Actually, we shot it in Long Island. Hmm. And it was a similar process, just kind of like we went out and I started to just give them directions for movements that I thought were interesting. Hmm. And it's really a mix of like Tai Chi or Tai Chi-ish things, martial arts, yoga, and modern contemporary dance and ballet, just all the ways we can kind of consider moving. And that's more or less kind of how that, that yeah. film was born. It's all really led to a film that's actually I'm showing in New York at Hauser & Worth uh, November 12th through, I think, January or something called The Hikers, mm. which like is a graduation in a lot of ways of mm. some of those earlier. Right. I was going to bring that up because it's currently on view at Aspen Art Museum and Museo Tamayo. Exactly. Yeah. And I understand it kind of came from an experience of you going on a hike. It did. It came from me uh, spending some time in Aspen and going on, on hikes. And for those who are less familiar with Aspen, it is quite pale. Um, <laughs> there aren't a ton of folks of color there. Which is, which is, you know, what it is. It's just what the place is. I remember as I walked through the streets of Aspen, whenever I see a person of color, I just like almost like wave, like wave at them. And it's something that's not even conscious on my part. I just kind of smile at them. 
is thinking like if the race war were to start, like at least they would be there or something. Not that I believe that there's any race war starting, but <laughs> just feeling a little bit of joy and seeing someone who shares characteristics with you, which, you know, anyone I think would naturally mm. have. And I started thinking about hiking and walking and thinking about Thoreau and walking, thinking about nature, our engagement with nature, our relationships with different kinds of people. And if I were to run into someone on a circumstance like that and how quickly love can bloom, platonic love, you know, these quick bursts of love when you see someone who looks like you in an unexpected place, how you could quickly fall in love with them and that that love can disintegrate as quickly as it was born and it can kind of dissolve and break up. But, you know, there's a beauty in that kind of interaction in those moments, those kind of shared moments. And, and uh, born of that was the hikers. Mm. I love your description just now because it got me thinking about your flyaway exhibition, got me thinking about Native Sun, this whole idea of escape and, and the yearning so many of us on earth have to escape. And, and the reality is that we have these pains and the struggle we have to sort of cope with or deal with every day. How do you think about escape? I guess if there was something thematic in my work, uh, a lot of times it would come back to that as a theme. Escape is impossible in some respect. It's, I mean, the astronauts always come home. So. Yeah, the astronauts always come home. <laughs> um, you know, suicide doesn't seem like a good option. Escape is uh, temporary at best. But I think that we all are, you know, most of us have some relationship to the concept and what it is and what it could be. And, it, you know, it lives in my work in a lot of different mysterious ways. It's a funny thing because I, from the African-American perspective, I always think about the, the history of escape, whether it's from, from the south to the north, mm -hmm. right? It's like follow the North Star. Like you have to get from the our Marcus Garvey saying, there's a black star line. Like we're going to go back to Africa. Like all these kind of movements, right? To even thinking about someone like Sun Ra, the, the uh, avant-garde jazz pianist, who didn't even imagine himself to be from Earth. He started to say that he was literally from Saturn and that that was his story, right? And so just kind of thinking about that history and, you know, the history that most of us have with how we escape, where we escape, what's possible, like where can we go, right? And there's oftentimes obstacles that you face in any of those scenarios. Like, can we go to Spain? It's like, do we speak Spanish? Like, can I get citizenship? Like, and so, you know, it all loops back into the bits of self-exploration and, the realization that the human condition has like more or less put us as prisoners in our own minds and that we just have to figure out how mm. to like negotiate with that terrorist. I think of little Rashid walking on that Carl Andre right now. <laughs> <laughs> he was an escapist. Yeah. This is great. Thanks Rashid. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. 
You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 